Hello, hello. Pete Oslin back at you from the Left Right Middle podcast. Thanks for joining me today and Happy New Year. Hope everyone had a productive, enjoyable 2023 and, and uh, of course, are looking forward to 2024. And I wish everyone the best um, in all aspects of life. So I was sitting down this morning. I had a cup of coffee with one of my good friends, an entrepreneur who's done well. And, and I started sharing with him the idea of this podcast and some of the sort of principles or um, what I hope to achieve from it. And as I sort of described it, he kind of said, well, why don't you share that with your audience? So I thought it might be a good idea since it's we're starting off. This will be the first podcast of the year 2024, just to sort of reiterate um, why I'm undertaking this effort and uh, yeah, and see if it uh, continues to resonate with uh, people out there. I, I think the first thing, and I covered this a little bit in my one of my previous podcasts, was I want to start to reach and define and help define a growing population of in, independent voters and thinkers, which I believe is an underrepresented group uh, in our society in terms of having different channels and mediums to uh, communicate their messages. And so, you know, that's, that was sort of one of the different, one of the things that motivated uh, me to kind of pursue this path. I think second, uh, to engage in a dialogue. Uh, so when I bring up these topics and issues and as, as I grow and we have guests, that we engage in a dialogue like we're having a cup of coffee together. Um, but we come to that uh, conversation over that cup of coffee, uh, being well-informed, open-minded, uh, enough so to where we're willing to change our opinions uh, and views of the world if provided the right sort of information and, and data points. And so I want to always continue that as uh, one of the principles here. And I think the third, the third leg of the stool, if you will, was to start to unpack issues and conversations around small businesses and how we can collectively find ways to uh, help others be more productive uh, in their own pursuits. And that's, again, a place where I think some guests will help. Obviously, I have a lot of uh, experience uh, myself being a longtime entrepreneur. And uh, the more that I can convey some of these ideas, uh, I, I think that would uh, continue to add value. The one thing I'm not, I haven't done and I'm probably not terribly good at, I'm not sure I'll ever be, uh, this will ever be part of the, the platform, if you will, is I, I haven't done a ton of promotion, uh, but I would just like to start this new year out by saying, I think I'm at the point that if you're ready and you're enjoying uh, some of the things that we're talking about and the manner in which we're discussing uh, issues and topics each week, then uh, yeah, go ahead and feel free to share it with uh, your friends and colleagues and uh, have any ideas, you can always reach me at Peter at achieve the word achieve uh, hyphen one spelled out O N E dot com. And um, I'm open to uh, sort of listening. I also have some contact information on the podcast site itself with respect to my Twitter handle and things of that nature. Okay, so um, let's get started. Let's get in this week's material. Um, I think uh, I'm going to start with uh, I think some of you that have listened to this before know that I have uh, what I call a weekly all-in dig. I tend to sort of weave this in as um, as the podcast sort of ensues. I have maybe some issues ahead of it. But this week, I just felt like just sort of getting it out of the way. I mean, right out of the gate. So for those that you don't know, all in's a podcast. Um, I think it's the, maybe the number one tech podcast, but it covers a, a series of topics and current events and issues and things of that nature. And Generally speaking, I find it to be informative and uh, pretty well received. Um, but as I've stated in the past, 
I think it has an inherent bias. Um, and, uh, I like to, I like to point out that bias and, and, and articulate perhaps more of a middle position, independent, more rationalized view on, on a particular topic or issue. So I, you know, I also want to take a second here and say, well, why, why all in, why do I want to focus on that particular podcast? Well, I think, for me, since podcasting and this medium is becoming sort of, let's say, a new platform where we're getting informed versus some of the traditional platforms that have been around like radio and television, of course, that hopefully in this pursuit, we'll be able to define uh, more sort of fluent uh, dialogues and boundaries around how we articulate and uh, communicate to the masses. And so... You know, there's nothing sort of restraining me from being able to use this as a forum. Uh, the cost entry is low and things of that nature. So that's, you know, I think the best place to sort of advocate for this independent type of thinker and organization is is through this podcast channel and maybe to articulate differences here. The, the second thing that I think why I'm sort of have focused on the all in dig as part of this programming is, you know, look, if I point out stuff that CNN saying or Fox News or NPR, any of these sort of channels that swing uh, pretty clearly to the left or the right, um, it, it's, it's, it's more or less stating the obvious, right? I think there's, there's a reason why we don't sort of rely on those mediums anymore because they are sensationalized. They are sort of there for entertainment purposes, at least it perceives to be the case at times. And while they have experts on, there always tends to be sort of an inherent bias there. And sort of my hope around when I first started listening to all in podcasts was that they would they wouldn't have that inherent bias, or at least they'd have the altering opinions as they sort of formulated issue. Okay, so I've already probably spent more time on that. And I should sort of articulate it, but let's go ahead and jump into kind of the weekly all in deck. And I almost made it through the whole show this week, which is impressive. Like, I mean, I think they got a lot of great things they talk about, but with six minutes to go in the programming of that uh, podcast, uh, they brought up the Supreme Court case, uh, uh, Supreme Court case in Colorado, and how that sets just a horrible precedent for uh, that the Democrats are saying by removing Trump from the ballot. And uh, Shamat this time led the conversation and continued sort of down this, you know, down this path for a good six or seven minutes, um, you know, saying that Democrats had overstepped their line. Uh, somehow this was driven from the top by Biden. And and it set this terrible precedent. Of course, then Sachs, who's another sort of he calls himself a conservative or a centrist. He's he's not. He's a, a Republican to the right, probably pretty much. But you know, he piled on pretty pretty quickly. And um, gosh, he even went as far as to said that President Biden is the most quote unquote vindictive president ever. And wow, that just caused me to pause. Uh, for any of us out there sort of in a neutral stance on, you know, our, our positioning around uh, who's in front of us today as far as political choices, I don't, and over the last 10, 20, 30 years, I'd have a hard time walking away from a conversation thinking that Biden is the most vindictive president ever. Uh, I'm pretty sure we were all observing the Trump presidency um, where, again, I went into some detail on that the other week, where his sort of efforts <laughs> to be vindictive and even more recently, um, you know, suggest that he is the retribution of the party, meaning that I tend to attack any of those that oppose me and sort of has exhibited that behavior. 
through his first presidency, I, I just have a hard time seeing why why we would even draw that conclusion as Biden being the most vindictive president uh, ever. Whether you uh, support his policies or not, I, I have a hard time walking away from this last four years um, with that sort of judgment. The other thing I think here that is a mistake that people often make uh, is that when they bring up a topic or an issue or an event or whatever, they tend to have this sort of massive generalization that will say, oh, the Democrats did this or the Republicans did this. And it sort of paints this picture. If you have that, if you are that from that perspective, you're sort of grouped in with, you know, all the thinking that any one Democrat may do or the bad press that is associated with that. Right. So, I mean, and same on the Republican side. And I don't, I don't think that's really fair. I mean, we have to, at some point, evaluate individuals for what they are. I mean, certainly I don't think in the Republican party, you're going to say with this latest, uh, uh, Congressman Sanchez, who, uh, you know, fabricated a bunch of information related to his uh, his work experience and so forth. And I think finally was you know dismissed. I, I don't think you're going to say that's indicative of all Republicans. And so, again, that's what I had issue with on the podcast. I mean, Schmalt within this thing, he says he kept saying, you know, things to the extent of the Democrats have made this precedent. Well, the reality is the courts are being used to sort of resolve issues. And that's always been the case with the court system. In fact, if you want to talk about politicizing the courts, how about the 60 court cases that were brought after the last election brought by Trump, none of which were resolved in his favor. In fact, many were one line sentences. Was that not politically motivated trying to overturn an election? I mean, uh, I would, I would certainly think that's a better illustration of, of a party, if you will, trying to use a, um, use the judicial system to, as a precedent. So first of all, Shemont was just wrong in his facts, you know, saying that, you know, this set of precedent, well, it's already been the case that, um, uh, you know, elections have been adjudicated at some times through the courts. It's sad that it gets to that point, but that's sort of what happens. So in this case, you know, as we went into last week on uh, the Supreme court, Colorado case it was a closed case, but the, the, Juxtaposition of it is it's, it's evaluating a certain part of the 14th Amendment that really hasn't been adjudicated yet. And so I, I suspect this will be resolved by the Supreme Court, but there was nothing sort of illegal about it. I mean, it was just sort of an interpretation of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Um, in fact, in that amendment, as I'll reiterate, uh, there's, um, it, it's, you know, there's an indication that a person can be convicted um, without necessarily having it or could be um, should, could be permitted or not permitted from holding office on the grounds of, uh, you know, this amendment being that they support an insurrection or try to undermine an election or whatever it may be. There's nothing in there saying that they have to be a convicted criminal. So to the extent that we'd like to see, some would like to see due process and this, you know, him convicted, let's say, uh, through the courts, that's certainly a fair argument. And it may be ultimately what the Supreme Court uh, resolves. However, as I mentioned last week, the originalist interpretation of the, of the Constitution, of which there are many uh, that currently sit in our Supreme Court, uh, their belief system is that we interpret the data as, or the, the, the Constitution as it's written. And any changes to that should be supported by Congress. So if it required, for example, the 14th Amendment, a due process criminal conviction before we can exercise uh, or interpret this aspect of the 14th Amendment to not permit someone to uh, hold office, 
then I don't think the Supreme Court case ever, the Colorado Supreme Court case that is, ever even reaches this point. But the reality is there that while it was a close decision, there was nothing really done that wasn't within the letter of the law. The second unresolved issue that I think will get resolved in this sort of sequence is whether the president himself would have immunity under this under this amendment, because it doesn't clearly state that the president is one of those people that can, uh, or a presidential candidate can be barred from potential election, as we discussed last week. And so that's another legitimate issue that needs to be resolved. I suspect, because again, that amendment uses the reference to any person or people that support an insurrection. Well, if you're talking about people in general, one that could imply a former president. It could be a, a general for all we know, right? And so I think it was intended to be read broadly. And I doubt um, Trump was going to ex escape com or, or be awarded complete immunity from, from any prosecution, especially when he's not in office. So that's another issue that'll be in front of the courts right here that again, is being brought by Trump to slow proceeding down that one would argue is politically motivated because he's currently the target of that investigation. But the, the reason um, for the all in dig in this context was just uh, kind of the overstated weight of this, the, of this circumstance um, enough to where, you know, Schmuck goes on to interpret this is that this is somehow the Democrats downfall, this one case of, because it was for Supreme Court justice and the Supreme Court that were democratic by affiliation. However, like I said before, uh, this has been going on for years, uh, all sides of the party. And, and by the way, this whole thing is never happening had there not have been an attempted insurrection. And that's cu currently what's getting tried. So, yeah, while it might be a little bit unprecedented that we're trying to prevent someone to run for office again, or when I say we, the, the Democrats in this case, um, it wasn't without cause, right? Uh, there were actions that were taken during that time, uh, even to the extent of telling your vice president to be brave and not certify the election or like, quote unquote, fight like hell uh, against, uh, you know, this uh, a valid election process. If these things haven't happened, we don't have the Supreme Court case. There's no reason to interpret the 14th Amendment, Section 3. It's so it's not as if this can be implicated without any reason. And I don't know why that aspect was lost. And so uh, the other more moderate sort of uh, co-host on that show just sort of, you know, kind of went away and it was the last thing they talked about. And I think those guys have gotten tired of probably def defending their positions against uh, Sachs and more recently Shamalt, uh, who, um, you know, who know, know a lot about a lot of other things, but um, uh, in this case, uh, I, I think uh, their political uh, disposition tends to sort of reveal itself. By the way, there was another state that just recently a uh, uh, top election official barred Trump from the ballot as well. If you haven't heard, uh, that would be Maine this past week. Um, quote unquote, the weight of the evidence makes clear Mr. Trump was aware of the tinder laid by his multi-month effort to delegitimize the Democratic election and then choose to light a match, she wrote and that he used false narrative election fraud to inflame his supporters and direct them to the Capitol to prevent certification of the 2020 election and the peaceful transfer of power. Okay, so that was the main Secretary of State sort of making that decision. Again, interpretation of the 14th Amendment, that it met, it met the standards of obstructing, uh, you know, and supporting potentially an insurrection. A reasonable conclusion 
Will, will that conclusion hold up in the, in a court of law? Well, that's what we're, we're about to find out. And I think that's the big thing that everybody went crazy on, uh, on the all in podcast was somehow this was going to, um, uh, you know, that this, that this shouldn't have been brought at all. Uh, when in fact, I think the due process issue, there'll be, will resolve itself. It may be after this whole process that a criminal conviction will be required and uh, individual states will not be able to bar candidates. But at this point, it's an unresolved issue. And that's the purpose of the, the court system is to sort of bring some clarity to this. So uh, one that we'll sort of watch going forward. Okay, so on to some other stuff. Last week I talked about, I wanted to cover this week, I think another bit of a hotbed issue um, or, and more and more will so given our tensions with China. And that's um, China's sort of influence and ownership of of property here in the United States. So I want to do a little bit of research. I want to say, okay, well, what is, what's that actually really look like before saying, gosh, you know, this is something that is a hot button and we should address immediately. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start with the conclusion first, <laughs> I guess in some respects here. And then I want to get into some data and share some charts with you to sort of consider for those that are uh, watching here uh, uh, through the screen rather than just listening. Um, I was actually quite happy to learn that foreign entities in general own just a tiny fraction of all U.S. land. Okay, so just over 3% or 40 million acres of all privately held agriculture as of 2021. So that's, and that's by the USDA AFIDA annual report. So I was happy to learn that overall. So you think big picture over the, over the bigger number is that they, it's not a significant percentage that's held by foreign investors. Secondly, um, Canadian investors own the largest, slightly less than the state of West Virginia, according to this USAID FDI report. Chinese land holdings account for less than 1% of farmland in any given state where there have been purchases made, according to the US, USDA FDIA report. Uh, a couple other data points, over a third of the Chinese land loan own land in the U.S. belongs to Smithfield Foods, Virginia, a Virginia-based meat packer, uh, currently top four in the U.S., and it was acquired by a Chinese pork company in 2013 and is publicly traded. The three largest of the three largest ent entities of ownership, Sun owns 40 percent, and some and some of those investments have received scrutiny. Um, so I don't mean to imply there should be concerns over this. Or, or our guard shouldn't be up. In fact, one of their projects was uh, a wind farm was denied because I think it was close to uh, a military base, if you will. So, uh, you know, again, sort of starting with the conclusion first, we're not talking a significant uh, amount of ownership. I want to show you something here now. i share my screen. Um, see if I can pull that up here. Okay. Uh, here we go. Uh, coming back to this one, this will show you, uh, this will show, okay, let's go into slideshow. Okay. So this shows you sort of overall ownership and who, where China ranks among entities own, that own farmland as a 2001. So China ranked actually 18th out of the 111 total countries that own the most farmland in the United States. So you can see here, uh, from the chart that it's Canada, the Netherlands, Italy, United Kingdom, Germany, generally countries that are friendly to us. And then if we look at China, they're down at 18. This is an interesting comparison. So this is sort of a visual of uh, Chinese owned land on the top there compared to Canadian owned land and where they sort of own land across uh, the country. Um, and I'm not sure, 
can't remember the color distinction there. Oh, it's it's the it's the density of it. I apologize. So the density of those sort uh, acres within that area. Uh, okay, so then that's one graph on that. I'm trying to think here. Okay, what else? Okay, so this would be the places in the density of Chinese owned land, again, done through those corporations and mostly that I uh, had mentioned, Smithfield Foods, uh, one of them, and all of these acres, which make up 42% of Chinese owned land in the U.S. are connected to companies owned by billionaire Sun Guaxon. That's another, that's another major owner, Walton International Group. So you can see sort of where they're spread uh, throughout this area. The, um, again, I don't mean to imply that there's no uh, issues of or shouldn't be any issues of concern here. There probably are, especially in your military bases. I'm glad we're bringing awareness to this. Um, it's it's something that you know we'll continue to sort of look at. Uh, let's see. I was reading a, something on the Committee of Foreign Investment. A government panel reviews these track transactions, investments in real estate transactions that it did not have jurisdiction over all the deals. Um, and so sometimes it's difficult to get sort of accountability, uh, uh, especially uh, what they're trying to investigate is how close are these to military bases in terms of spying and things of that nature. Um, the other the other thing uh, that came out of some of the research was that there aren't that many investments that take place at agricultural facilities here uh, annually. Um, in fact, from 2008 to 13, and this is a little bit dated, uh, there are typically two to three investments a year in food annually, most valued at less than 10 million. So very, very small transactions. And so that may be part of just a different sort of risk profile. But given that we are uh, currently experiencing these tensions with China, I think there's um, there's there's a lot of concern about this, and and I and I agree. While it's something we should probably watch in the context of our, our other concerns of China's behavior, it certainly isn't one where um, you know there's uh, you know sort of a, a, a sort of a inflection point that's been reached. Let's say I think a bigger potential issue for us uh, as far as sort of the economics uh, of the United States are concerned is that right now, uh, again, this is a different source in the wall street, uh, two thirds of the world's rare earth mining occurs in China. It processes around 85% of the ore and it builds more than 90% of the magnets. Um, and, the challenge is some of our new ventures, we can't deliver at the prices that China can, and they have a deeper bench of potential rare earth minerals. And these are the minerals and uh, so forth used in silicon uh, chips, uh, which again, uh, are a big component of sort of driving productivity and things of that nature. So I think that may be, that may be something for another discussion uh, potentially go into, but, uh, I did want to sort of go into, into that today. All right. So moving on, uh, a bit of a small business type of perspective or an issue. Uh, I read an article just this past week and then started digging a little bit. Uh, and this is, uh, Silicon Valley and the tech drain. And I guess why I decided to sort of point this out was if we look at, as far as technology companies are concerned, our last 20, 30 years, uh, there was an inherent bias that if it didn't come out of Silicon Valley, somehow it couldn't grow into be a meaningful company. And, you know, as 
um, as access to capital, as access to resources has become horizontal or distributed, we're starting to see that change. It's probably a good thing, right? I mean, we want to be able to live where we want to live and people want to be productive in any potential um, demographic area. So I, I was always curious, is there data supporting that you know, Silicon, you don't need to be in Silicon Valley to start a great tech company. Now I realize I've got a lot of people potentially that listening today that don't care about tech companies or starting companies in uh, the, uh, Silicon Valley or just tech companies in general. But I bet you this kind of parallels with other industries as well. Now, sometimes there's industries that require a lot of people. And so you got to be in a more population dense uh, sort of uh, facilities. So just kind of jumping into some of these um you know, data points. And I want to come back to, uh, you know, a bit of my own experience with this uh, here in a minute. But if you jump into some of the data points, Silicon Valley has lost nearly 1,400 tech workers in the last two years leading up to 2023. Now, there were layoffs um, uh, and that kind of, kind of accelerated that. Uh, but, but, but other parts of the country gained tech jobs in the last uh, two, three years. Dallas, Worth tech, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, metro area gained 30,000 tech jobs over the same two period. Um, and so there could be a couple of things contributing here. One, as I explained, the ecosystems are taking uh, root in different places. And so the tech hubs in these different places are growing um, and they keep cropping up through more innovation investment uh, in other parts of the country. In addition, uh, we're seeing non-tech companies are employing more tech workers uh, by the virtue they need to understand and leverage their data. Uh, in fact, uh, a good, a good example of, of a really successful company that didn't have come out of Silicon Valley the last couple of years is cart.com, which cracked a $1 billion valuation in June of this year, uh, after, uh, launching just two and a half years earlier, it was founded in Houston and, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I don't, it would have been hard to make that sort of argument that that's the place where, um, where things like this were going to go. In fact, if you, if you look at the data and I'm going to share one more screen with you here that I thought was again, helpful in this context was, uh, the cities in which, uh, we're gaining, oh, let's say, let me share my screen here. Oh, come on, Pete, where is that? Oh, here we go. Uh, the nation's tech workers uh, are gaining worker or losing workers in places like Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Boston, New York, Los Angeles, and the greater Washington, D.C. area are actually shrinking. So you can kind of see the percentage, um, you know, uh, decrease here indicated in the blue circles. And then the growth areas uh, are in green. And that tends to be like growth in Seattle. Probably no thanks to Amazon, which is which is great. Uh, Salt Lake City, Denver area, Houston, Miami, right? And so I guess in my own little view of the world, I you know I moved to Bend, Oregon in 2006, and I'd been in the technology industry, and people thought I was sort of crazy to sort of make that group. But having grown up in the Northwest, I wanted to get back here. And in Bend, Oregon, I've seen now in the last 15 years, uh, I, I was able to be part of a growing hub. So uh, I, I've seen that manifest where initially it was very difficult to find engineers and uh, potentially people to, uh, to employ in your company. That's now just become a different scenario. In fact, by the time I was, uh, had finished running that last company, uh, half of my workforce was ro located remotely anyway. 
uh, because they could do their jobs from different places and uh, than here in Bend, Oregon. But it didn't it didn't limit my ability to be successful. And I think what's what's a positive byproduct of this sort of trend is sort of that era su- supremacy, you know, that is taking place down in Silicon Valley, maybe lifted, and um, same with the ridiculous standards of success, right? Because I think those models encourage such a high degree of risk taking that's really not um, one. It's not the not inherent or the temperament of a lot of entrepreneurs to assume massive risk, meaning raise millions and millions of dollars and then hopefully it works. Um, many entrepreneurs are more incremental. Um, maybe they go after a niche or a certain segment, and that doesn't require the same amount of resource, and they grow their companies that way. So, look, I've been part of teams that have raised. Um, you know, venture money, Silicon Valley money. Um, in fact, and even have traveled down through San Francisco and LA and have uh, pitched to prominent VCs. Um, and, you know, the the sort of harsh reality is now when, you know, when the market's correct, like they're correcting and the valuations were extremely high, many are sort of uh, experiencing paltry returns. And I'm not sure the economics, they don't always make sense. And they certainly don't make sense for every business. And so um, it's encouraging to see that uh, this uh, this trend continue because I think it will, uh, will enable us to live and prosper anywhere we want to work, uh, live and work. All right, let's kind of turn, uh, turn our attention uh, maybe to more some domestic sort of topics or items. Hey, I don't know. This may or may not be a long-term trend, but uh, I thought it was worth me- mentioning. There was a data point that came out. Oh, I think it's U.S. News. Fewer people are posting on social media. Okay. So I have a 15-year-old daughter. I thought I'd discuss that with her a little bit. Um, and and so I thought, found this to be intriguing. Uh, one, because... Uh, you know, the time spent on social media, right? Um, and, and I think people are starting to realize that, you, you know, is this really adding value uh, to my life to be posting on social media? And what's, what's how's that, where's that contributing or, or uh, diminishing mental uh, health and awareness and things like that? And so he, data that looked at sort of, Billions of people using social media month, monthly uh, are posting less and favoring a more passive experience. So more just sort of observing what others are posting. The other thing that this article talked about, a phenomenon that happens is that when you post as an individual and then you don't see your friends posting and you're the only one posting all the time, it kind of makes you feel a little disconnected and also makes you feel perhaps that maybe you're the only one uh, that feels the need to sort of embellish on your, uh, on your day-to-day experiences, if you will. Um, And more folks are finding and posting on social media uh, in sort of more deliberate ways, maybe major vacations or events and things of that nature. And maybe that's a healthier dynamic. Maybe we start moving away from spending more time as uh, on, on, in that, in that forum. Okay. So, uh, I guess else domestically, I want to sort of just resolve out one particular issue that I talked about uh, last week, which was, uh, you know, what was happening in uh, with the Ivy League school, schools and uh, uh, what's going on in Gaza and Israel, Israel in terms of their, um, you know, their attempts to sort of uh, stabilize that region and 
Um, and I'm sure everybody's heard enough of this story, but I did find it interesting that today President Claudine Gay, who's really only at Harvard uh, the shortest tenure ever, she's only been there for six months, um, uh, ended up resigning, becoming the second president resigned from an Ivy League school, Penn being the first. Um, and, you know, she indicated this is not a decision that came easily, but she felt it was the right thing to do. Uh, she had faced sort of two major controversies, really in a matter of weeks. One was about the school's response to the growing anti-Semitism and uh, sort of the neutral position taken on uh, uh, some students within Harvard being able to, you know, post po protest what they call Israel's occupation and uh, amounting to calling a genocide and, and asking for aggression against Jews and not really... Um, addressing that. Another was a more personal matter regarding accusations of plagiarism. So all those, these things kind of piled on the next uh, the last couple of months. Uh, there was one data point uh, that I came across. I think it could have been the all in guys that even shared this, that uh, already Harvard applications were down 17% year to date. So they're, they're, you're having a ripple effect. Um, and, you know, I guess the, the really damning part of the testimony was when she was asked, uh, uh, when they were uh, testifying in front of Congress, if calls for genocide of Jewish people would be considered harassment at Harvard, Gay, along with the other heads of the two elite universities, said it would be dependent on con context, refusing the time to give a cut and dry response. And, you know, she never really was able to live that down. And so, you know, pendulum swing, as we know, uh, on these political issues uh, over time, and maybe this is a time where it's swinging back the other way. All right, so I'm going to close out today with kind of a society, uh, my society and culture aspect of this uh, podcast. I thought this was really interesting. As I mentioned, sort of my motive and one of the things that I covered on a previous podcast was the growing number of independents and independent organizations, independent thinkers. We're going into 2024, an election year where there, there potentially could be a lot of um, emotion and uh, which can lead to animosity. And, and certainly the last time that we went through election cycle, there, there was a lot of personalized attacks. And even uh, many of us experienced sort of disenfranchisement with friends and family. And so I thought this was a really positive thing. Uh, there was a, there's more groups being launched in efforts to lower the temperature in politics. Um, and this was... Um, uh, you know, there's an article that came out this... One of them is called, oh, shoot, what's the name? Braver Angels, uh, which now has sort of annual meetings and they try to invite people from both parties and sort of to have a, uh, you know, uh, a, a dialogue or a conversation around a topic or an issue. Um, and these foundations are actually raising reasonable amounts of money. I think one had raised something like $40 million. Uh, you know, what? one of the, well, this is a positive trend because uh, if you're unwilling to listen, and it usually means you're not willing to learn. And I think the biggest, you know, the biggest thing we can do to sort of help ourselves be informed and decide on this year, decide on someone to represent us in the Congress or Senate or the presidency or whatever, uh, is to uh, be open-minded and be listening. So these groups are sort of are, are advocating for this. Incidentally. Uh, one of the things that was stated in this article, their, their biggest challenge, their biggest challenge is incivility is, re, is re, they say is relentless. Partisan news outlets and social media promote stories that fuel outrage with, with one party or, or the other, um, or, 
or political opponents um, insult other opponents, vowing, investigate, vowing to investigate and punish critics if they win. And so, you know, they're trying to remove that incivility um, and, and that sort of growing dynamic that, and again, I think this is where the whole podcast channel could be an interesting forum because when you're not driven by, um, you know, ratings and things of that nature and the need to support advertisers, uh, you don't have to sensationalize all this stuff. We can have um, a dialogue about it. doesn't mean we can't be emotional or invested in opinion, but we're not necessarily even trying to change people's minds um, about an issue, let's say. Uh, that's that's You may have done your research and you be, may, may be well-formed in your issue, but mostly what I think these organizations are trying to do <laughs> is to tra try to change your minds about each other. You know, like this is just another person and, you know, they've come to this conclusion through their experience and so have you. And, um, and again, the, the best part would be is if they're willing to be informed and uh, potentially change their opinions uh, based, uh, based upon new data or, or potentially more research. And so if, if what we conclude is true, that the independents indeed are a growing market uh, category, then more and more, I think we'll be able to, um, hopefully begin to resolve our differences. So I want to end on that positive note. And again, I want to thank you for your time. Keep coming back. Uh, I'm trying to perfect my art. Uh, I think as we get, uh, I get more experience with this format and presenting issues to you and having that cup of coffee with you as I am today. Uh, I hope to bring in some, you know, again, continue to bring in some guests that are, could be, uh, could be fun to, uh, have a dialogue with around this, uh, around any given topic until then have a great, uh, rest of the day and a good start to 2024.